1: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chulai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Ryan kicks off this hour from Port Orchard. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
0: Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, thanks for calling in. How can I help?
0: Well... Uh, I just started an uh, internship with the local ministry, so I'm learning about all the, the sound and lighting and stuff, and my boss mentioned that he was interested in doing DMX lighting, and so I happened to mention this to a certain, uh, certain bearded Twitch streamer, and he told me you were a good person to ask about this sort of thing.
1: Hey, tell Rakai I said hello, and we appreciate him uh, recommending the Ask Noah show for this. Yeah, so um, essentially what it comes down to with DMX, it's, it, it's incredibly straightforward, Ryan, and it's incredibly difficult to master. So I, I often relate it to playing uh, the piano, for example, if, uh, if you're musically inclined at all. So DMX uh, comes down to, to, to basically understanding binary code. Have you played with binary code or have a, a general idea of how binary code works?
0: I actually took a, a class where we had to convert between different numbering systems, including binary. So I'm somewhat familiar with it.
1: Perfect. So then, then, then DMX will come second nature to you. So the basic idea behind binary code, if anybody doesn't know, is that you have a series of light switches, and the light switch can either be on or off. Now, each position of the light switch—not position is in on or off, but position is in how the light switches are laid out equates to a certain number so the very first number is the number one and then we simply double the number as we go from left to right so the next number the 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 switch immediate to the right of the first one which represents one would be represented by two and the next would be four and the next would be eight the next would be 16 32 64 so on and so forth and so if i turn the first switch on then the number one is true and if I turn the next switch on then the number two is true and if I turn the next switch on the number four is true so on and so forth and I add all of the true or on light switches up and that gives me a decimal number So if I had the one switch on the two switch on and the four switch on we add four plus two plus one and we'd have seven and that's the basic concept of binary and DMX is addressed in binary so you'll have ten switches on the back of a DMX box, and so you would assign a channel to each DMX box. So let's say I take a let's say I have a regular uh, DMX light bulb. So I just have a fixture that has a regular light bulb on it. I can turn that light switch. Or I can turn that light fixture on or off. So I would assign a channel to that DMX fixture, and let's say I assign the channel 1, I would turn to the dip switches at the back, and I would turn just the 1 dip switch up. If I wanted to assign it to channel you know, 9, for example, I would turn the 8 uh, dip switch up, and I would turn the 1 dip switch up, if that makes sense. And 8 plus 1 is 9, so it's assigned to DMX channel 9. And DMX channel 9 can be either on or off. Now, that's, that's, the, that's the basic premise of DM, uh, DMX. Where it gets a little bit more complicated, not all fixtures, in fact, the vast majority of DMX fixtures are not single channel. So, for example, let's say I had a fixture, but inside of the fixture I had a red bulb, a yellow bulb, and a blue bulb. I could turn each one of those bulbs, the red, yellow, and blue are all, rep- or let's use red RGB, right? So, red, green, blue. Each one of those colors is represented by a DMX channel. And so if I the the single fixture is a three channel DMX fixture, so I would have to assign the first fixture channel one the next fixture would have to be channel four because both one two and three are occupied by that first fixture. Have I lost you yet?
0: No, this is making
1: sense. Okay, so so then we take it and we get a little bit more crazy and we start incorporating different functions inside of those channels. So, for example, I can have a fader function. So I would have a level of 0 to 255, and that is a fourth channel. So channels 1, 2, and 3 are the representative of the colors like red, green, and blue, and then channel 4 is the dim function. So how bright do I want the light to be? Uh, and then you can get on, uh, it gets even more complicated when you start getting into moving heads because now I have an X axis to rotate the, the light left and right and that can be a value of 0 to 255 and I have another channel for Y because I can go up and down uh, and you can have a Z axis, that I, I mean, it, it can you can really get carried away and so you can have a single fixture that maybe has, you know a, you know, 200 some DMX channels in it or whatever it is, right? And so uh, you have, so, so that's where it gets to be. So channeling that stuff out is where it gets to be complicated. So uh, where to get started with DMX lighting? The most basic way to get started with DMX lighting is with a, a device called the DMX King. And it's a USB device, completely compatible inside of Linux natively. Don't have to install any drivers. You don't have to do anything. Just plug it on in and it works. And what the DMX King will do is allow you to send DMX, uh, channels and commands through your from your Linux box to any DMX. We call them universes in the DMX world to any DMX universe. And um, I, I'm going to put a link here for you in the show notes to the to the DMX King, and it's a uh, it's a sixty dollar uh, little device. And you can buy, and I'll put a link to these too in the in the show notes. Um, you can buy. We call them par lights, and basically what they are is it's they're just a little uh, a little multicolored display. And if you bought two or three of these, uh, you could do a pretty decent light show and it would only cost you a couple hundred bucks. Uh, so uh, we've used the, 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 the uh, chevet uh, Slim Par 56 and there is a gentleman that's a listener to this show that does uh, DJ at, at, at a much bigger scale than I do and uh, he's shaking his head right now at me for recommending these, uh, these uh, Slim Par 56s because he's not a fan of them. But the, the, the reality is... Um, Right, and that they are inexpensive and they work really well, so that you can buy four of them for three hundred dollars. Uh, so for three hundred fifty bucks, you would have a lighting show that would rival uh, any small wedding or any small venue, uh, and you can pack it up and take it with you, and it's all going to run open source. So on the software side, um, there is well, there's a couple different options. Uh, the the uh, the one that I use is QLC plus and uh it is it is a fork i believe of the original qr uh, qlc and uh, q light controller is the name of it and i'll i'll put a link to this as well but it's in the it's in your distros repos whatever distro you're using it it probably exists there um but you can install that free software pick up that dmx king um usb dmx device and and a couple of lights to get you started and 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 you'd be well on your way
0: all right and my boss has said he's Somebody came in and actually set up some DMX stuff, but it wasn't entirely clear on like how any of it really worked. Sure. So
1: yeah, and that, that- I think
0: we have the technology there already. It's just a matter of putting it to use.
1: Even better. And the thing is, we we tried for a while. Uh, because as as a lot a lot of you know all the speed technologies we do events so we'll go out and if you're if you're having a wedding or we're we're particularly popular when it comes to things like barn dances and outdoor events because there aren't a lot of people that want to travel 60 to 70 miles and I don't, I don't mind it but uh, one of the things that we have tried to do is we have tried to set up a system in in such a way that we put all the slim 56 or whatever and we channeled them all and put labels on them and put them into a case so that the idea was that we could just Take them out and plug them in and everything would work. And what you found was, at least in our circumstances, it's not really possible to because you never have the exact same setup twice. And it's difficult to get everything plugged in the exact same way that it was. And and you know, cabled the the right way and all that, and you wind up with things on different universes and 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 whatnot. So it it got to be complicated to do things that way. So what we have gone to is just every time we do a new event, we reset up all the channel numbers. Now, if you're doing this inside of a church and everything aesthetic, obviously you don't have to redo things multiple times. But I would start from scratch. Uh, get that DMX King and 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 a, and a laptop loaded with a with your, your Linux distro of choice, get QLC plus installed, and start with that and add one fixture at a time and and build your universe up rather than try to figure out how somebody else had set it up for two reasons. The first reason is because there's no guarantee they actually did it correctly or even completed it at all, you might wind up with uh, with duplicate channels and, and all sorts of weird things that are going to be a pain to troubleshoot. But the second reason is if you set it up, the process of going through to set something up will help you learn it all the better. And so one of the things that I do anytime, and it doesn't matter if I'm setting up a DMX system or if I'm building out a system for a client or if I'm installing a piece of software for the first time, as soon as I get it done, the very first thing I do, while all that information is fresh in my head. And this is a difficult thing to force yourself to do. The very first thing I do, blow the server away, do it all over again from scratch because it's a learning experience and it'll help cement it into your mind. And if you're worried about being able to, uh, you know, in the the case of software, if you're worried about being able to do it when it's all fresh in your mind, you should be real worried uh, what's going to happen eight months down the road, nine months down the road when you've completely forgotten half the stuff. Uh, And which uh, so it's it's an opportunity for you to double check your documentation. But that's what I would do Right. I would start out with, I'd set up the, the DMX King, I would set, set up the software, and I would build a universe out one light at a time until it functioning until you understand exactly how all of that stuff is functioning, and then you can get more elaborate as you go on. Does that make sense?
0: I think so. Like I've done something similar, like when I, I set up a web server on a Raspberry Pi recently in the house, and so what I did is I played around with a virtual machine to the point where I could if, essentially script the process. Yeah. So it yeah. kind of sounds like similar logic.
1: Very much so. Uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 very similar, but good.
0: Oh I was gonna say it's sim- similar logic, just a completely different application, you know?
1: Very much so, in fact, one of the things I like about DMX is that it's very down to the metal and, and very very straightforward. In fact, I, and I, maybe I've lost this battle. I don't know. I, for a while, I was trying to convince Chris to put DMX stuff in the studio um, because I, the the fa- the thing that you can do with DMX that you can't do with any other smart smart light or anything like that is the amount of integration and control that you can you can achieve with it, and DMX is how I do, if you guys have ever seen my Christmas light show, I do that all with, with DMX, because it's instantaneous. The response is instant- instantaneous, and so you can sync it up to a beat. Uh, you can do a lot of things. There's absolutely no latency, and of course, that's partly because it's not going up to a cloud, and it's not even relying on network packets. they It's just actual, you know, commands, you know, serial commands, essentially, turning this thing on and off. Uh, but it can scale up to having a smartphone app and all of that stuff. It's all capable of that stuff. It's just you... You know, you have to want to do that stuff. And, and, and so it's just it's a more flexible, more reliable, more resilient system. Uh, and so I really like it. Plus, nobody can unplug your controller and, you know, take the system offline. Right. Because they, they, all the lights just function. So. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, I think it's a—I think DMX is really, really cool. I think it has a really bright future. And in fact, we're remodeling our house. <clears throat> And one of the things that we've done in the living room for some accent lighting is we have DMX cables uh, run up into the ceiling and haven't exactly decided how those are gonna terminate, what those are gonna actually turn into, but um, we're gonna do some sort of, uh, not recessed lighting, what's the term, Um, ambient, ambient lighting? Not ambient lighting, where it's not, you can't actually see it, discrete lighting, whatever you wanna call it, inside of some channels up by the ceiling uh, that we can turn it different colors and stuff. And uh, I think that'll be kind of cool. Brett calls from Chicago. Hey, Brett, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Taking my call. Yes, sir. How can we help?
2: I had a question for you about um, being able to access Linux desktops um, remotely, kind of like a remote desktop thing. And I've experimented with a couple of options, but I'm having trouble finding one that actually meets all of the user requirements that I have for a, a business application. Okay. Um, so I guess what we have right now is we have a, a workforce on uh, you know, Windows desktops in the office, and part of how we're enabling folks to you know, maybe do a work from home day, that sort of thing, is they'll do a VPN connection into the office, um, and instead of letting their home laptop, which might have Windows viruses, just let them have free roam on our network. Instead, we're firewalling it so that they can only RDP from their presumably Windows or Mac machine to their trusted Windows desktop, and do what they need to do from there, and pick up an existing user session. Um, So what we're thinking is, you know, we'd like to maybe try to swap some of these on-site Windows machines out for Linux desktops, and I need to be able to replicate that workflow. And there's kind of I've identified maybe four or five. Uh, must-have features that I'm having a real hard time coming up with a whole package that does all of these things. Okay, Um, I kind of alluded to a a few of them, but uh, it has to be able to, uh, when you remote in, resume the local console session. So if somebody was working on, let's say, a spreadsheet in LibreOffice while they were at the office, when they remote in, they should be able to get back their desktop session that was locked or what have you here and just see what they were working on, including that same spreadsheet. Okay. Um, they'd also need to have the local console be session locked, so that you know somebody can't just walk up to the screen, see what they're working on, move the mouse, type things on the keyboard, and mess them up. That sort of thing. Okay. Um, I like it also to. This is again just to kind of match what we already have with Windows, sure. where a local console login can then override a remote login. If somebody you know remotely logs in and falls asleep with their laptop or home computer still connected and then shows up at work the next day, they shouldn't be locked out of their system. They should be able to log in locally and essentially interrupt that session, the remote one, and resume it once again with everything open still ready to go on their local console. Okay. Um, and then kind of the last bits would be that uh, authentication, is done with regular you know the plain old username and password that they log in to the desktop locally uh, that's where VNC kind of fell down for me because it looked like there was a separate single password to access everything um, and I was looking for here's there's the, the real hard one this is almost kind of bonus if you can get it but where different user accounts always get separate sessions so if someone is logged on locally as user a and then you know, that, let's say that's a part-time worker. They're sharing a computer. We don't mm-hmm. have too many of those, but then they're off for the day. Their session is locked. User B is working from home the next day, not at the same time as user A, but that should lock user A's session. User B should be able to log in remotely and get user B's separate
1: session from user A. Does that all make sense? It does. Um, all right. So uh, I've got a couple of different ideas rattling around in my head. Um, let's start let's start with this let's start with the let's start with the let's start with the the most uh, simple one-to-one uh, relationship have you played with XRDP mm-hmm. I
2: did and I couldn't find a way um, and I just in case it matters I was testing against um, the the workstation to remote into I just threw up a VM of Kubuntu 1804 because' sure. probably what we deploy um, and I was RDPing into it it worked, except I couldn't find any way to pick up an existing user session with that method.
1: Right. Uh, and and, and so, so right off the bat, you're up against a couple of, of, of hard limitations of the way that Linux currently implements its display server. So that is, you have the X server, which runs on the back end, and then you have the X client that runs on the front end. And so... Depending on where you interrupt that process, if you connect straight to the back end, you have successfully locked the user out of the front console session so they, they can't, you know, walk by and see the screen and what they're working on, and all that. But you are not meeting the requirement of picking up their local session because it's establishing a new X session, so to speak. The second if you go the other way around, you can which is the way that XRDP works? You can grab that local user's desktop, but there are two issues. One is performance becomes an issue, and the second thing is, uh, your anybody that walks by that console is going to see anything that's happening on their display because it's it's obviously they're just uh, literally just remote controlling it, and that that is that's a hard limitation of X. So I'm not sure that you're going to get past that. There are a couple of there are a couple of ways that that might accomplish the same things, even if they don't 100% entirely meet. Uh, word for word your your requirements so uh, xRDP is one but as you discovered you can't actually resume a session X2 go is I, I undoubtedly you've, you've at least heard of it if not played with it and and realized it it didn't quite ma- yeah, match your with it a little bit Yeah, so the so the the thing about X2 go is it doesn't actually control the local session so it's not necessarily picking up off of where the person that was logged in uh you know left off or something like that so in your example if you had a if you'd left a a a spreadsheet open or something like that you're not necessarily capturing that session however one of the things that i have going is i have on my on one of my machines at home i have transmission that runs and one of the things that i do with x2go all the time is i log in so i have that session running and uh, transmission is open and working and all that stuff if i log in with my username and password and click on transmission it will resume. I get the active session of transmission, assuming that it's the same username and login. So, for example, if I'm sitting on a web page and I open up Firefox through X2Go, I will get back to that web page that's there. Not, But if I just log in, I can't see necessarily everything. It won't automatically populate all of the applications that we're running, if that makes any sense. So it doesn't, it, it, I, I wouldn't...
2: I, I did have a little bit of luck with uh, x to go because I, I, maybe this is a new option, but they, they did add one that I've been playing with called Connection to Local Desktop, as opposed to starting a new, say, right. E-Session or something like that. Right. That did work pretty well, but then I couldn't find a way to kind of lock out the local console from messing with the remote session.
1: Right yeah and so if so the and and you can't because again if you're doing the connect to local session what you're doing is you're screen scraping that um that that front-end session and the other issue that you're going to run into x2go is as performant if not maybe a little bit more performant than rdp in a lot of cases however when you connect to that local session that all goes out the window because you're literally you're 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 transmitting you know a png of that entire screen constantly whereas Typically, the way that X2Go works, when it's establishing a new session, it's drawing all of that stuff in your X2Go client on your local machine. So when you move the mouse, you're moving your local mouse cursor over a locally drawn you know, folder or whatever it is you're doing, when you type something, it's actually drawing that stuff on your screen and then sending it, and then the latency, you don't really notice it because it's sending it back to to that machine. So only when the machine has to respond to something, you know, then then you start to see it. So for example, X2Go would not be good for, you know, watching a movie, streaming a movie or something like that, although it still would be far and away better than VNC. Uh, But of those requirements that you laid out, I'm going to tell you that X2Go is as close as you're going to get and you, you won't necessarily... Be able to do all of those things one to one, but let me let me let me just uh, give you a slightly off-topic suggestion. Uh, so, X2Go is the closest you're going to get in a, in a completely native Linux environment. However, the reasons that a person typically wants to introduce linux into a business environment is often because you want the reliability and the stability of linux and you want the you know less trouble tickets to be opened and, and all of those kinds of things i have found that you can get 95% of the way there if you virtualize windows so you would take your 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 workstations and put them into a virtual host so to speak and the desktops that sit at the at, at your workers desk when they're there, it's still an RDP session, so it doesn't matter if they're in the office or out of the office. It's always an RDP session. Uh, and once you virtualize Windows, a number of different tools that be, that are a pain to manage Windows become available to you. So, for example, something goes wrong with the Windows box; it totally blue screens. You literally log into Vert Manager, click on the Snapshots tool, go back to wherever the last. You know, configure change that you made, and the user's workstation is back to normal. Uh, and you can set up profile redirection so that their local files aren't actually modified when you do stuff like that, and, and all of that stuff. And, and and it's not a it's not a perfect solution, but it's because obviously you still end up you're still paying for the Windows license, you're still dealing with Windows updates and stuff like that, you still have to worry about Windows malware if it's downloaded or or code is executed, all that stuff still applies. But the damage is less, and the maintenance is less, and the management is less. So if you can't if you can get it to work on X2Go, which is from what you've described as your best opportunity, if you can get it to work on x to go that's that's awesome, that's plan A. But if you can't get it to go, if you can't get it working on X2Go, a virtualized Windows environment would be, uh, I, I think it would be a solid plan B.
2: That's not a bad idea. Um, I mean, we're probably going to end up having to incorporate as part of the experience of being on a Linux desktop. You know, you you RDP into... This Windows VM to run something like oh QuickBooks or some ancient Oracle Forms thing, but we we were kind of hoping to make those the exception rather than the rule and actually replace Windows applications with uh, you know things where we don't have to worry about those licenses you know things that are either free and open source or at least Linux native.
1: Sure, you know, and I'll be the first one to tell you too. Having done this, ex- having gone through this scenario a number of times, you will find that your users will be will be okay with change if it's change for the positive. So for example, when you actually sit down, you say, all right, so here's the thing, you know, Frank, when you, uh, when you remote in from home, you just, just uh, make sure uh, we can set all of this stuff up, uh, up that'll work. But the way it'll work really well is when you're done for the day, just make sure to log out. And you know, that's good workstation security anyway, but instead of locking the screen, we just ask that you log out. And that way, when you log in from home, uh, you just start a new session. So if you're working on that spreadsheet, just save it and close it before you leave. And you know, that'll save you a lot of headaches. And, and then, and then that opens up your options a little bit, what you'll find, or at least what we have found is when you uh, when you set things up like that, and and the user sits down and they go, hey, you know what? The fact that I don't have to con- I don't have to you know configure this the certificate and all this stuff for this RDP session, and uh, the box doesn't totally lock up, and I had to drive to the office to reset the thing, or this software didn't lock up, or whatever, and I I got the newest version because you know I've worked in offices where you'll have. A couple of employees will say, well, why, why did they all get the new version of Office and I'm still three years behind or four years behind and I can't open Peggy's documents because she saves them in .x and we have .x? You know, When you can eliminate a lot of those problems, you'll find that a lot of your users will say, you know what? This, Yeah, I, I got to remember to log out or I got to remember to do this but everything else works so much better that in, in the end it's a net win it's a net positive and and you find your users are uh, you know overall happier and then to sweeten the experience on the top of it we'll do a, you know a little bit of optimization on on the actual workstations anytime we're making a transition that, that's you know regardless of what it's going to and so just you know outfit the machines with SSDs and stuff like that and 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 tweaking the x2go settings so that they're getting a really performant experience when they're at, when they're in a remote session you know that goes a long long way
2: so if you took the route of uh, kind of shoving everything inside of a, a Windows virtual machine and remoting into that from a Linux workstation, would you, if, if you were setting it up, would you keep everything that they had to do that they considered their computer inside of that one Windows VM? Or would you try to split per application to different VMs and do some native, some not? What What's your arrangement
1: for that? Depends on the cost of licensing. So... Yeah, I've done it both ways. If they have, a, so we work with a, we worked with a, a fairly smaller office and um, it, the primary age group of the people that were working here were like 55 up. They had about nine machines and, um, and they were doing a uh, volunteer like charity type work, right? The, uh, I mean, I gave them the Linux pitch. I, 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 you know, I, I went the best I could, you know, can we try it? Do you want to sit down? And I mean, they're, they, they didn't even want to look at it, much less try it, right? I mean, there's just, there's, there's just some people just get so set in their ways. And, I mean, these are people that are still using uh, – they find Windows 7 uh, to be dra- a drastically different experience uh, than, you know, Windows Vista or whatever because, they, I mean, there's so many sweeping changes as far as they're concerned, right? And uh, in that instance, what we did was we used a tool called Dix- Disk2VHD. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. Disk2VHD, and what it will do is it will turn your physical workstation – into a virtual hard disk and what and then you can take disk to vhd and you can uh convert it into a qcow2 file with a single command and i'll i'll have that command for you in the show notes as well but what that command will do is allow you to take their physical workstation and simply drop it into a linux hypervisor so we they they left on on a friday and they had all of these physical machines. We flashed all the machines, put Linux on the actual desktop, virtualized the Windows environment, uh, using that disk to VHD. And when they came back the next day, they uh, they RDP into what they thought of as as you so eloquently put it, their computer because that's how they refer to it when they've changed the background and organized the files and all that stuff. It was their computer. And no and and, and I literally had one of the girls tell me. she goes, "How did you take my computer?" And move it but my computer is still here like i mean the the just the entire process to her was what it was like magic how did that happen how did my computer wind up over there so my computer is now in that box how did you get my computer in that box she and the the concept of of physical to, to virtual migration was just it was too much for her. uh and so that works really well the 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 downside to that is you're still individually managing all of this stuff and so we've had some times we, we worked with a uh, with a a firm that had some rendering software uh, and the problem with that rendering software is like $25,000 a copy. And they really didn't need Windows for anything else other than this particular uh, rendering software and stuff like that. And so what we did in that case was that we took this, you know, they had like, you know, they, let's say they had seven licenses and 10 employees. Uh, and what we did was we took those seven licenses and virtualized seven instances of uh, of this rendering software and then... And then gave everybody else, uh, you know, normal Linux workstations. And when they needed to render something out, they would just grab one of those uh, rendering workstations. And if you'd use overt instead of libvertd, which is what I would traditionally. In fact, I'll throw a link to the uh, libvertd setup too. Uh, the libvertd setup is how I would set up the actual hypervisor. Um, and I'll, I'll get a link there. It's it's literally like six commands, and and it's set up. In fact, I was just setting it up for a client uh, earlier this week. And it was it was funny. I was I was sitting there, and the, and the guy goes, uh, "So what now?" And I said, uh, "It's done. You have a virtual server." He goes, "That fast?" I said, "Yeah, it's that fast. Uh, it's it's like seven commands. You execute it, and, and you'll have a virtual a virtual host." In fact, it, it, another side story: uh, we actually set this up on the way to Linux Fest Northwest. I, in the time that it took Chris to wash his RV and get back to the studio, we had formatted a box, installed uh, CentOS, and configured a virtual host. And I did that with my laptop in a garage balanced on my knee in about 10 minutes. Uh, It just doesn't take very long at all to set that up. So I'll have a link to all of that in the show notes for you. But if you use Overt, one of the things that you can do with Overt, and I've not set this up myself, but my understanding is with Overt, you can set it up in such a way that when you go to connect to, like in, in my case, I was using these rendering instances, you can just have the user connect to a rendering instance and it will find the next available machine that's not being used and let them render out software. So and how I would make the decision of if I give them quote unquote their computer or if I have what we would call resource computers is depending on the licensing. If it's cheap enough, I just give everyone their own machine. If it's expensive, then I would I would do res- I would do uh, you know individual customized resource machines for those specific tasks.
2: Have you um have you had that same experience kind of with the uh, referring to the their computer VM version of that? Um, going, going from a desktop on-site makes sense to me, but we do have users on laptops who, who roam around. Connectivity might not be that great. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, my fear would be they'd be cut off from their entire computer in their mind if they suddenly couldn't get on a Wi-Fi hotspot, and then they've got this, what they would think would be a dumb device in front of them. Do you, do you have any ideas for ways around that or have you encountered that?
1: Yeah, actually so we have a law office and the attorney is is uh, it pretty religiously will take his laptop and uh, and just get up and just <laughs> start walking somewhere else. And uh, when we first virtualized them, uh, and they're not a lot of their stuff is is Linux even in the in the virtual space but uh, the, the, the first thing that he told me was, Man, this is fantastic But because before if I was downloading a file or if I was saving something or if I was printing a job 100 and some pages and I lost the Wi-Fi for my laptop, then my whole workflow get interrupted. The great thing about this new system, however it was you set it up, was that uh, I just lose the connection. I double-click back on the thing and and I resume work back from where I was. And if I was printing something, it continued to print. And if I was downloading something, it continued to download. And in their case, they compile a lot of... uh, audio files and video files, and then they compress them up and then they upload them to this FTP thing for, you know, uh, police and all sorts of various things. Uh, and so there's not an insignificant portion of his day is spent uploading and downloading files. And he thought that was the most fantastic thing ever, that there could be this static workstation that continues to work, even if he can't get into it. Uh, and, 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 and the system starts to build on itself, right? Because the first time you get somebody that travels to a lake or, or goes outside the norm or, or does something and all of a sudden, uh, their workstation gets recreated then it's kind of a cool experience for them right or if you have users that are roaming around with laptops the, the ability that they can grab any laptop or sit down at a desktop and have their environment just there is is great of course if you have users that are using rdp now they're probably somewhat used to that the second piece of advice i'll give you when it comes to roaming laptops is make sure that you have a really decent wireless system so the ubiquity line, for example, the UAP, uh, UAC Pro supports something called zero handoff. And basically every access point in the entire system is aware of every other access point in the entire system. And they are all communicating to a central controller. So when Chris, for example, is walking around his living room and is, and, and is on the, the access point in the living room, if he starts to walk out to the garage, one of the things that he asked me to do was set up a second access point uh, out towards the the front of the studio so that if he, if he as he's coming into the studio or as he's leaving the studio or he wants to you know broadcast from the drive or whatever it is, Uh, He has Wi-Fi out there. One of the things that the controller is constantly doing is evaluating where he is and where his devices are and where he's going to get the best, strongest signal. And once it detects a RSI of 20 dB or greater, it, uh, from one access point it will hand him off with with that's uh, got zero hand zero handoff it uh, supposedly doesn't introduce any latency it will it will hand him off seamlessly to the next access point now i'd be lying if i told you that works a hundred percent of the time with no equivocations but it definitely it won't won't interrupt an rdp session or next to go session it's, it's good enough that the user won't notice that they have jumped from one access point to another so as long as you have as long as you have a densely populated wi-fi you don't have any dead spots uh, you your users won't even notice uh, but the few times that i have had users that have noticed i have gotten positive uh, comments not negative comments
2: hmm. well we do have a uh ubiquity unify access point system covering our office here so that's a sounds like we're off to a good start
1: yeah absolutely yeah so the unifies all by by default for the last years and years and years uh have supported zero handoffs in fact they were one of the first companies uh to come out to support that at a at a, at a usable budget so i would say you're very well off and uh, do me a favor brett please give me a call back and let me know how that works out because uh i'd love to hear how that that plays out it sounds like uh it sounds like you're you're, you're doing some really cool things and it's, if i could ask you for a small favor uh i have a production question for you so i'm going to put you back on hold i'm going to have uh sarah our call screener pick up with you and uh, and just chat with you uh, and, and ask you a question, uh, a production-related question. Again, phone lines are open, one 855 450 That's one The email, live at com. Make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. So last week, uh, we talked about Chromebooks. And in fact, indeed, the week before, we talked about Chromebooks, and uh, I am not about to do a third week on Chromebooks, although to be honest with you, I, I probably could because uh, I like Chromebooks that much and I've had that great of an experience with it. But uh, I, there was one small little wrap up to last week that I wanted to finish up and I didn't quite get to. And that was uh, a small discussion, short discussion on USB C and USB C docks. My very first laptop when I was in like sixth, fifth grade or fourth grade was a used IBM ThinkPad 755C that I bought used at a, uh, at a computer store for $250 that took me three and a half summers to save up for. And it had this triangular-looking power jack on the back of it. And when I say that this thing had a dock, I don't mean it had a dock that you think of today where you set something in. I mean, this thing was just short of a Cadillac, and you, it, it had rails it had rails on the side, and you would slide the laptop would roll on these rails and slide in like a cartridge into this behemoth of a tank. And then there was this large connector at the back that would chunk into the laptop. And uh, the promotional video from IBM at the time actually had this this really neat animation of this laptop sliding into this, you know, th- this thing that was the size of Mount Kilimanjaro. And then a, a monitor stand would come over it and a CRT monitor would land on top and the keyboard and the mouse. and it it looked. Very much like the traditional desktop, and I don't mean a desktop tower that sits on the floor, like the desktops that used to sit on your desktop. Uh, and that was what I had as a as a dock, and uh, and I and that was I think probably the start of my love for docks because my laptop could become a desktop. But every laptop after that had a separate power adapter and a separate dock, unless you stuck with something like if you stayed within brand, you had a better shot. But you know. IBM had two or three different ones, even since the little triangular one. I think, in my experience, Dell was the most consistent. They had that little tubular thing. They did have one that had three, three prongs, but the, the little uh, tubular one, the fatter tubular one, was pretty much the Dell standard for like 15 years until they switched to the smaller tubular one, which has all but been replaced by USB-C. But they, didn't, they definitely didn't extend beyond brand. And uh, when I bought my first cell phone... My first cell phone was the springboard module for my handspring visor, and uh, same story. I had a, a separate charger for every single device that I ever had uh, until we got to the micro USB age, and then it was less split. Now we were split between mini USB, micro USB, and lightning or thirty pin or whatever, right? So it was it was slightly less, and uh, you certainly weren't powering your laptop with your cell phone charger. USB C. Has changed all of that. So if you're not, I assume most of you are familiar with USB-C, but it is a universal connector that they have put just years and years of research, years and years of thought into the best possible connector for a phone. And as as I talk to people about USB-C, and I noticed this when I was talking, I just made a couple offhanded comments about my Chromebook uh, last week, and I got email after email uh, about people that were, were confused about USB-C. And uh, and I can understand because there 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 are some there are some confusing things in the way that it, there's designed. So the USB, the Type C port, I'm going to call it the Type C port, which is found on ThinkPads and Pixels, and it's the only uh, port that Apple decided to ship on the MacBook. Behind that physical jack that exists on the side of the computer, there can be two distinct devices. The first distinct device is a traditional USB bus. And in the case of the Type-C port, it functions just like it would if you had plugged a normal USB device into it. And it comes with all of the advantages and disadvantages that USB has. The second device that can sit behind the exact same port on your laptop. Now, mind you, when I say sit behind, I'm talking about things that are inside the laptop. So just by looking at the port, unless you look for the little um, Thunderbolt insignia thing you won't you can't actually tell just from looking at the port but behind the port the second device that can sit is a thunderbolt bus and the thunderbolt was designed the thunderbolt bus was designed by intel and they worked with apple to to, to come up with this thing and uh the thunderbolt the, the Thunderbolt bus is really neat because it combines a couple of really useful things. First of all, it, it combines a PCI Express uh, connection, which uh, we all know what that is from our desktops. Uh, but it's, so it's basically, it's it's like having, a, it is having a, a, a PCI port on your laptop. It couples that with a display port and then two signal streams that layer DC power on top of all of that and funnel all of that data and energy into a tiny little connector that's not much bigger than a micro USB connector. The, I have seen, I, I don't know exactly what the spec is. It goes up to uh, a, a couple hundred watts, uh, but Dell has gotten a variance from that. And so if you buy the Dell one and use it on a Dell computer, you can actually get more power delivered through the USB thing. It's I mean, it's just spectacular. Now, the power can come in two forms. Every USB-C device can, power, can provide some power. But obviously, the power needs of my cell phone, which is something like 5 volts at, you know, 2 amps or whatever, or 5 amps, is going to be drastically different than my laptop, which has like 20 volts at like, uh, I don't know, 6 amps probably, somewhere in there. So the power that goes to my laptop is specified as power delivery. We abbreviate it PD. So if you ever see USB-C PD, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about power delivery so you can power a laptop. Now, when you buy a computer, ideally you want one with a Type C connector that has the Thunderbolt bus underneath. And the reason for that is the Thunderbolt bus is backwards compatible with the USB devices. So if you have a laptop, you buy a ThinkPad that has a Thunderbolt bus in it, and you plug a USB C device that is designed to plug in just to a USB bus, it will work on that Thunderbolt bus. However, If you buy a computer that only has the USB bus behind it and you try to plug a Thunderbolt device into it, it will not work. And this is made very complicated by the fact that we call it USB type C, even when it's a Thunderbolt bus underneath, it's still considered a USB uh, USB C connector. It's further complicates it because thunderbolt has existed before USB-C did and so we have different thunderbolt connections there's the one that kind of looks like the display port and then there's one before that so we have different versions of thunderbolt so thunderbolt 3 i believe is the one that has that utilizes the usb type c connector but in practice all of this stuff is really really confusing and so i i just wanted to take a moment and break a little bit of this down for you we got a contract to put in uh, some workstations for a company and much like the caller i was just talking to they use a lot of laptops and the way that their workspace is set up nobody has an assigned desk nobody has an assigned workstation they are assigned laptops and when they get in in the morning they have the option of sitting down at their they have like little cubicle type workspaces they have what they call uh Uh, uh, I forget exactly what they call them, but some sort of uh, it's like a it's like we all sit together and work together kind of a thing. And it's four people to a pod or whatever. And they uh, they they use those for doing like collaborative type projects. And uh, and then they have isolation rooms. So they're like little rooms along the hallway and you can go in and shut the door. And it's 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 very densely insulated. And so you don't not a lot of sound comes in there and there's power and Ethernet and all that stuff. At every one of these places, doesn't matter if you're using the little communal stations out in like their little lobby area or if you're back in the isolation rooms or if you're working at a cubicle, doesn't matter where you are, every one of these, uh, every single one of these places has a dock that they use. And so we bid out the the job to go set up all of these computers and docks and all of that for these guys. And uh, what what we came back with was We uh, talked to Dell at length. Uh, They were going to be using XPSs. And uh, Dell told us they recommend the WD-15. And the WD-15 is USB-C dock, but it runs over the USB bus, not the Thunderbolt bus. And uh, part of that decision was, they were very honest and and frank in the discussion, but when you start jumping from brand to brand, uh, it's not 100% reliable. And if you... If you are in the ASNOA Show telegram group, you will find that there is an entire lengthy discussion about the quirkiness of Thunderbolt uh, docks. And again, if you're on a Mac and you're using one of these docks that were specifically designed for the Mac or designed with the Mac in mind, you're probably not going to have an issue. And if you buy the Dell Thunderbolt docks and you're only using Dell products. Again, probably not going to be an issue. If you buy a Lenovo Thunderbolt dock and you're only using Lenovo ThinkPads. probably not going to be an issue. But if you want to buy one dock and you want to let anybody uh, use that particular workstation and they're going to have a variety of different laptops that are, that are, that are in, in use, uh, it's not going to happen with Thunderbolt, at least not right now. And that evidence, the, it's, it's empirical evidence. You can go and actually see this in practice. And uh, and and so and and just to say as a as as a test thing, we had tried taking a, a, a couple of MacBooks and connecting them to some of the Dell ones and uh, and the Lenovo ones just to kind of see what the interoper uh, interoperability is. And what you find is there's all sorts of weird things. There's flickering screens, and the power button doesn't work on some of them, and you 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 have certain devices that are not detected, and it's it just it's a, it's a mess really. Uh, so if you're not planning for it very carefully, and so we rolled out. Uh, these WD15s in large deployment and every single user has had a phenomenal experience. And I I was just over there the other day. It was one of the things I did after I got back from Linux Fest Northwest. I said, how are things going? And I asked them specific questions. Has anybody ever had laggy input? Has anybody ever had a USB device disappear? Has the network been slow? Has the network dropped? All of the things that you would think would be a problem when you start funneling all of these things over that USB-C bus. Not one person, not one person, even the people that have like 17 devices plugged into their uh, computer, not one person has had a problem. And, uh, you know, so what we have learned, and you can verify this with Dell, that they will tell you the WD-15 is one of the best docs out there. And if you want a problem-free deployment where everything works 100% of the time without any issues and works regardless of what brand you buy, then get a laptop with the USB-C type connector that has a Thunderbolt, uh, you know, bus underneath and get a dock that has a Type-C connector, but it has a USB dock underneath. And when that changes, I'll be happy to tell you uh, that the, the world is a better place and now the Thunderbolt docks are, are the future. But one of the things that led into this entire discussion was last week, I charged up my Chromebook and brought it home. And of course, a $350 Chromebook, guess what? They don't put Thunderbolt docks or Thunderbolt uh, buses inside of these things. They're USB-C, right? The ability to sit down here at the studio and plug into my USB-C dock and have it... Uh, Instantly connected to all of my studio gear, which, by the way, was particularly fascinating because uh, I I was—I had to actually do the show from my Chromebook. Was. Unbelievable. And then I was able to take it to my house and and use it there. And I was able to take it to uh, my office and use it in my office and just being able to bounce around. And that single that one single cable that plugs into my phone that plugs into my Chromebook that plugs into my ThinkPad that plugs into I mean, every device under the sun that I own now is USB-C and everybody in my family even got the kids USB-C tablets. Uh, it just—I'll be darned if the thing just doesn't work right out of the box. It gave me my dual screens, gives me the sound interface, sets everything to default. Chrome OS—and again, not to make the episode about Chromebooks—but Chrome OS, it detects a dock like no tomorrow. It—I mean, everything just instantly works right out of the box. I mean, you would have thought that this Dell WD15 was specifically made for that Chromebook. It works so well. I and and then you know, and then my daily driver is my ThinkPad, and it's working there. So, you know, it's one of those things where I I've, I've hear a lot of people talking about it, and I see that there's a lot of misinformation, people saying it doesn't matter if it's Thunderbolt or it doesn't matter if it's USB. Yes, it does. And uh, I definitely don't recommend anyone buy a laptop that doesn't have the, the Thunderbolt dock or the Thunderbolt interface on the laptop because it's always backwards compatible. Uh, so that's the direction I would go. And uh, actually, we got a call on this. Michael from Ohio. Hey, Michael, welcome to the Ask Noah show.
3: Hey, uh, I just wanted to bring up something and I I admit it's a bit of a fringe concern. Sure. Um, but if you're going to be if you're going to be using a pluggable PCI device such as with the Thunderbolt um, and uh, USB-C with a Thunderbolt backing interfaces, mm-hmm. uh, would it not then be prudent to make sure that your system is using IOMMU? Otherwise, uh PCI device has direct memory access. So the CPU doesn't have to babysit tra- uh, data transfer between an application and uh the, the, the device
1: is that the is that, uh i i, I mean, you you have to forget my ignorance is, is this the same thing as like the intel vt and I, I forget what amd calls theirs but where uh um i'm not an expert in it.
3: it 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 appears to be a way to map a way to map uh system memory to a virtual device uh, okay sorry, sorry through through a through a Great. I, I, I had some mechanism for mappings between um, the memory addresses that are needed for uh, interfacing with a PCI device. Because um, again, I, I wish I was more of an expert in it. No,
1: I, I understand. Yeah, no, I understand. Um, I, I just uh, my understanding. Uh, yeah. And again, maybe it, maybe this is a different terminology. But I, if it, if it's what I think it is, it's what they use for me- for doing the PCI pass through stuff, right?
3: Right. Right. Well, but I think it has to do with the fact that PCI devices have direct memory access to the, to the system memory. So, in, in other words, it's not using the virtual memory addressing that, you've, uh, it, it, that a program would, for instance. It, it, oh, I see. It can, communicate, it can read and write, I believe, directly to system memory. So if you have a, piece, a device plugged into a uh, in that pluggable PCI, if you have pluggable PCI devices, effectively, then those devices could theoretically have direct access to your system memory.
1: I see what you're saying. So, and
3: I, and I think that I remember reading somewhere that IOMMU could solve the security issues of that because it would be able to remap the addresses uh, and provide translation that would minimize the risk. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not. In,
1: no, the the well, the reason, I, yeah, it's it's interesting to me. The and I, I wish I I wish I knew more about it that I could speak more intelligently on on the particular issue. But to a certain degree, if we're going to, I mean, yeah, that's what a Thunderbolt connection is, right? It's a connection to the heart of your computer. And so, to a certain degree, if you're going to put something on your PCI bus, I mean, you can. I guess to a certain degree, like, don't we need it to be able to have access to raw hardware? I mean, isn't that that's how you get the performance that you get on a PCI access, right?
3: Exactly. Exactly. It, and that, that's, the, I guess, the entire subject, I guess, behind system security is the level of trust versus convenience and versus what you want to be able to do.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting that way, right? Because we don't uh, when you think about when you traditionally think about PCI stuff, nobody accidentally installed a PCI card into their computer, right? Nobody accidentally took the side of their case off, shut the computer down, unplugged all the cables, you know, dug out all of the, you know, cat hair that is inside of the most people's PC case, uh, took the little blank plate out, broke it off with a screwdriver, put the PCI card in, put the screw back in, put the whole thing back together. Nobody did that by accident. You know, whereas when we, come, right. when we start talking about Thunderbolt, it's like, oh, there's this cable in here. I plugged it in because I thought it would connect me to that monitor right there.
3: And, and then what happens when, okay, so you're, sit, you're sitting out at a restaurant somewhere doing work on your computer, and, you've got, and you're thinking, I am so secure. I've got an encrypted hard drive. I've got all my stuff. But you leave, leave it running when you go to the restroom, and somebody comes by your computer, slips a, a little dongle into your Thunderbolt port, and starts dumping your system memory for decryption to find the They got your key. Well, obviously, you're probably not going to be a target unless you're some you're somebody really high profile who has resources to do that. But
1: maybe, maybe not. You know what? You know, what has occurred to me is that uh, as we're talking about this, one of the things that we do and I won't name the I won't uh, I won't say the name of the client, but we have a system in place. Um, I don't exactly know how to explain it, but if you've ever been to like an airport, you know how they have the little tables uh, and so we have we have a, a table like that that is set up, and it has uh, regular power outlets. And then one of the other things it has is it has a this little uh, this little um, spider web that comes out of the desk, and it has three connectors. It ha- well, at the moment it has USB C, it has USB, and it has lightning on it, or U- micro USB, USB C, and uh, lightning on it. And it's for people to sit there and charge their phones. It's a convenience thing. Um, but as we're having this discussion, there's nothing stopping me from putting one of these you know, devices that could dump system memory underneath the table and running that cord up for the USB-C connection. And once everybody's phone and everybody's laptop uh, has these, you know, essentially direct access right to the PCI bus, if that can be exploited, you better believe somebody will. Gary, isn't it? Well, well, it's taking, you don't even, what I'm saying is you don't even have to have somebody. you don't even have to, it's not even like the James Bond thing where I'm sneaking by and plugging this thing into your laptop. You'll plug it into your own laptop if I offer you free power to do so.
3: (laughs) Oh boy, yeah, I I see exactly what you're saying, where that's going, oh yeah, that's, yeah. So anyway, you know. Apple who had.
1: What about Apple? No, go
3: ahead. I was going to say, didn't they used to have default passwords for their for their iPhones. I don't think they do anymore, but if you could plug in directly, you could get, I don't. Never mind. I I think I'm thinking about jailbroken
1: devices. Yeah, I, I I and again I'm you know the thing is I I I can talk about Linux all day long. <clears throat> this is not the program to call to ask about Apple devices. I just don't know. Uh, but it, <laughs> but it, it is interesting though, right? It is interesting. You know, just talk just to, to, to kind of shift topics just a little bit. Apple is doing this thing, right? And I thank you for the call, Michael. Uh, Apple is doing this thing where they sh- they are shipping the MacBook with only USB-C connectors, right? USB Type-C has Thunderbolt underneath. Only USB. St- C type C connectors. And Dell is shipping their laptop that contains USB C but has the other, you know, legacy ports on it. And obviously my Lenovo has all the legacy ports and stuff like that. But today, right now, as I sit here and do this episode, one cable will charge my laptop, my cell phone, my wife's laptop, my wife's cell phone, and my kids' tablets. And if you're an Apple user, you get almost all the way there because the iPad Pro has USB C and the MacBook Pro has USB C. Uh, but if you have an iPhone, you still can't charge with USB-C. So you're, it's just it's strange for the one company that is so big on, you know, we control everything from the top down, and Apple co-designed the thing with Intel. So it's not like it's somebody else's design and they're taking it or whatever. I just it's kind of a strange thing, but and you see it from Apple users, you know, they'll they'll. Say, it's just frustrating that you can't use that that one cord. If anybody was going to come up with a design where you could use one cord to power both your laptop and your phone, man, I I would have called. I would have said that was going to be Apple. So it's kind of crazy to me that that, that's not the case. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. So hopefully that's some information for you about USB-C if you're interested in a USB-C dock. If you're interested in buying devices that have USB-C, hopefully that gives you some information to get started. I will have a link to the WD-15 my all-time favorite dog i uh after doing that installation i chris has been kind of a part of the uh of of my uh, of my ranting uh, up until now because i uh <laughs> I, I was sending him uh, like a a live blog streaming of you know here's the one that the client bought and then i i bought a monitor and set it up for myself and now they're now they're everywhere james is calling from idaho hey james welcome to the ask noah show
3: yeah, um, i trying to get back into the KDE thing, but um, their
0: splash screen is bleh. Um I can't figure out how to change that in the new, 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 new KDE. Are we just out of luck?
1: No, I don't think you're out of luck, James. I actually, uh, let me see here if I can do some on-air troubleshooting, but there is, uh, I, Chris actually changed the uh, the splash screen. I think it's actually, let me see here. I think it's actually just in inside of the... Uh, inside of the settings uh let's see here does uh yeah splash screen uh so check out uh, if you go into the if you go into the settings and uh, just on the upper left hand uh, corner just type splash uh you'll get to the uh you'll get to a option where you have the ability to change the splash screen give that a shot if that doesn't work give me a call back And I I did see your email, James, so I'll follow up with you uh, about scheduling later on. Hey, guys, uh, if you caught the episode a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was asked to give a presentation at the University of North Dakota. And so we talked to the communication department, the communication students about podcasting and what it takes to get a podcast off the ground and some best practices on podcasting, what I've learned over the past couple of years in podcasting. And uh, it's one of the only shows of the Ask Noah show that is presented in video format. You actually get to see my ugly face walking around. One of the things I talked about in that presentation I really hit at home was I talked about the function of community, how important community is to... A podcast to any any sort of broadcast because you have to talk with listeners not at them i'm fully aware and i there isn't a day that i don't wake up that i am deeply thankful to god for every single one of you that download the ass noah show or listen to us live we really appreciate it and uh, i understand that i have a responsibility to you guys as the community To not just be available on the air, but to be available as much as I can off the air to continue the discussion, to answer questions, uh, to take feedback, to incorporate that feedback into the show. And we have a number of different online communities. You know, we've got the Telegram group, the IRC. We've got email, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon. uh, Mastodon LinuxRocks.Online is our own Mastodon instance. Uh, We've got the Reddit. And... I do the best I can, but I can only keep up with so much. So this is the week of Reddit. So if you're interested in uh, hitting me up on Reddit, if you're interested in making a suggestion, I'm going to read every single thing that comes into Reddit this week. And uh, and we're going to try to respond to all of that and uh, and build up that Reddit community as best we can. Hey, did you know this show is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get all the latest, of course, following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. on Twitter. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Stelsis for providing our phone system, Ben, our producer, and Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content for you 24-7 at AskNoahShow.com.